Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. This next episode was a lot of fun. You know when you meet people that are doing so many things simultaneously that it kind of makes you wonder if they're operating on some kind of different space-time continuum? You know, they, they just seem to do so much that you don't know how they actually fit it all in. <laughs> well, well, that's my next guest, Devin Miller. Devin is another classic entrepreneur that has, you know, 10 new ideas before breakfast and he's already thrown out 20 more by dinner. Um, He has four degrees, including a law degree and an MBA, both of which, by the way, he earned at the same time while looking after a young family and working. He has founded and co-founded several seven and eight figure businesses including a business in the wearable space that is now valued at somewhere around eight to nine figures. Now, in this episode, Devin shares his journey and particularly how the wearables business came about and went all the way to eventually merging with another entity. But he also shares lots of insights on how to review new ideas, how to test them in the market, and ultimately get them to a point where you can monetize. Of course, Devin also has started an IP law firm, so he shares some great advice on IP protection. You know, this whole whole idea of do you get a patent, do you trademark, do you do these various things? And he sort of debunks some of the myth around that and gives a unique perspective on how to use this asset to even leverage a potential business exit. I, I had such a great laugh chatting to Devin, so I hope you enjoy this episode too. This is Devin Miller. Hi, Devin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. My absolute pleasure. Um, we were just sort of chatting uh, just prior to getting on here, but you mentioned you're in Utah, and I'm I was feeling feeling very jealous. I'd love to be uh, out of lockdown at the moment, and probably anywhere but here. But uh, <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for it's coming a great on the place. show. If you, if you have a chance, we have a lot of things to do outdoors. So once you get out of your lockdown, you'll have to come visit. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Darren, I'm so excited to hear your story. I mean, you've done so many really cool things um, in your time and, and you're obviously out there really helping people still. So I'm, I'm keen to hear your story. M- maybe just for the listeners, you could kick us off and just give us a little bit of your, your background. Yeah, and I'll try and keep it to a reasonable scope because that could be a, a whole conversation in and of itself. But yeah, so quick background as far as uh, family-wise, married for 14 years to uh, my wife that I met in college, um, have uh, four kids ages uh, uh, five to 10. Um, 
Educational wise, I got uh, four degrees, which my wife uh, jokes is always three degrees too many. So I got electrical <laughs> engineering, uh, Mandarin Chinese and MBA and then a law degree. So kind of hit the across the board a bit. Um, but um, really, so I've always kind of had two passions. So one has been I, I love uh, the, le- the legal aspects. So I do a lot with uh, as a lawyer with the uh, patents and trademarks and helping startups and small businesses. And then I've also loved um, doing startups and small businesses myself and being an entrepreneur. So kind of in tandem to that, you know, people always refer to it as a side hustle. I always think of it as a second full-time job. I started uh, a few uh, few businesses, uh, probably the, the biggest or most successful so far was actually the business that I started in uh, when I was doing the law degree and the MBA degree at the same time, which is in the uh, wearables industry for uh, diabetes monitoring. Yeah, wow. So, okay, so, you know, you've Bible sells the name of the show, right? So we, t- we <laughs> love talking to people who've bought, built, and so I don't know if you've bought a business, but you've definitely done this startup build and sell aspect to it, it's, uh, which is really cool. Um, is there one, so, is that, so that wearables business is, is the one that sort of really sticks out as, uh, in your mind as one of, the, um, one of the main businesses you've run. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, I mean, every business is kind of its own little baby. So it's kind of like choosing your favorite kid, but it's certainly one of my favorites. It's really the the first business that I started. So it kind of is a bit near and dear into my heart. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if it qualifies as buy or not. So it's kind of a, a quick run through the business. So I was in, uh, you know, give you just a bit of a context. I was doing the, the joint law degree and the MBA degree at the same time. I had a two-year-old kid. We just had a newborn. I was working 20 hours as a law clerk. And then kind of in the midst of all of that, I said, you know, and I saw, I can't remember if it was an email or a flyer, but basically saw something where to the effect of, hey, we're having a business competition as, you know, multidisciplinary where you get designers and engineers and lawyers and MBAs all together and you form a group of people you don't ever, you know, you don't know. Um, and then you, uh, you know, you enter in a business competition. So first year I entered and or showed up formed a group, didn't know anybody. We came up with an idea it was to make gym bags less stinky. And it was uh, it was a fun idea, but uh, we got to the end of the competition, took second place. And we all said, yeah, it's really not a business that we want to pursue. But we came back the next year and, um, you know, we said, okay, we'd like to, we got back to the same group and the, wanted to do the competition again. We didn't like our, our last year's, uh, what our project was. So we were brainstorming different ideas and some of them were really dumb, like self-packing boxes and other things that didn't, would have never worked. Uh, but then as you know, so it was after a brainstorming session, I was walking home and I was kind of brainstorming. And at that time I was, I just ran a, a, my first marathon, still loved to run. And I was kind of saying, wouldn't it be cool if you could have a wearable that, you know, watch that would monitor your hydration level. Now this is a before Fitbit, before Apple watches or anything else out there, there wasn't really any wearables, but that was kind of the initial idea. And then, you know, fast forwarding a bit, prototyped it out, took some initial data, entered in the business competition, took second place again, which is bittersweet because I think we should have taken first. Um, But, you know, then we got to the end and we were all graduating. And I said, you know, well, you know, we're all going to different parts of the country. And I don't know that it's going to be a good way to run a business. And so I actually bought out the rest of my partners. So wasn't technically buying the business, but I did buy out the rest of the partners and said, okay, I want to pursue this, but I'd rather do it on my own. And I, ha- I knew all the technical aspect of it and had the or the background. So that was really the, the first business that I started. And, and that's where 
that business in. We bootstrapped it for a while, brought on an investor, invested some money as well as it was a partner and they helped out on the business. And then we were actually doing a, or testing it with NFL teams and college teams and, and getting ready to go on the market. And we, what we really needed was the next tranche of money. And so, you know, we would have had to get an, the bigger investor dollar to make it look the bling and the polish and everything that would be a good consumer good. And as we were doing that, we then, um, we're looking at different options. And one of the options that came along are the opportunities of somebody else that we knew that we were kind of or in talks with was doing uh, diabetes monitoring. And they're doing it in they weren't doing this their wearables, but they were in the diabetes monitoring industry. And we as we got to talking a lot of what we were, our technology for the hydration monitoring also overlapped very well with the diabetes monitoring. So we actually merged the companies together. Um, they're took some different ownership structure. I actually, or not sold out, but I converted a lot of my ownership into that, took a step back. And so I still passively kind of involved with the business, but to a large extent kind of sold out other than I, I maintained some of my ownership. So that was probably my first business and my first love. And that was probably a much longer story than you anticipated, but I had a fun time telling it. <laughs> Man, I had a fun time hearing it. I, I I almost fell over when you told when you said at the very beginning there that you're doing a law degree, an MBA, <laughs> you're working, you're starting a business. Like, I, for First of all, your wife must love you. And second of all, I'm sure there's a whole range of medals she deserves right now. So, oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> she, she deserves more medals than anybody else. So she was very supportive and I didn't sleep very much. I wasn't, uh, I was always thinking about other things and she was right there along with me. Yeah, that is brilliant. That is brilliant. I do know what it is like to, I was doing an MBA with young kids and working and oh my goodness, even my wife says to me, oh, that's right. That was the period of life where we just didn't see you. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, my wife's like, yeah, you're all bored now and I'm great that you're involved with the kids. For that, those while, like, it was like, well, we might have seen you for a couple hours on the weekend when you weren't studying or doing business. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? So, t- tell me with this, with this particular, we- I mean, wearables is such a big thing these days, and it's, and it's, I think it's probably only at its very early stages too. You know, we're seeing a lot of evolution coming down the line. I'm curious as to, you know, I've I've done some of these group work things, and was there a particular point where you started to, where you realised, hey, hang on, this this is something. This is this idea is more than just one of those little kind of uni projects. You know, I don't know if I could pinpoint it was, you know, it was, as we were kind of getting, they had the idea. And first of all, I'm like, oh, that'd be cool. I'd love to have it. It'd be something I would use and it'd be applicable. But then you start to kind of think about, okay, it has to be more than just something I would like because if I'm the only customer, we're not going to make very much money. But it was kind of looking at the, all the different markets and all the different applicabilities. And again, this was, if it would have been today's day and age, wearables, you know, still in infantry, but there's a lot more wearables out there and they're a lot more popular. There wasn't wearables out there like I'm, sh- I'm sure there was something out there, but nothing mainstream, nothing popular and really nothing to, to hitch on to. But I started to think, OK, you know, it was hi- early stages, hydration monitoring. It was OK. You could do this for military applications for all the soldiers out there. You could do it for college athletes. You do it for firefighters. You can do it for general health because hydration can help a lot with a lot of migraines and headaches and other things. And starting to look at the marketplace and say, OK, there's a lot of applicability, a lot of ways to do this. And then after you see, OK, we did the built up the prototype and. To add to the story that build up the prototype. So my dad's an engineer as well. And, you know, actually or worked for some of the bigger companies, including LG Electronics and their medical division. So when I had the crazy idea, I, I called 
called him up and says, well, you do a lot of electronics and medical devices. Do you think this would work or could we get it with him? Well, maybe. Let's try it. So we actually went over over Christmas break while I was home from call or school over Christmas break. We built up the first prototype, which is what we started to test with. But kind of, you know, seeing the marketplace, seeing that we as we tested, we actually saw good results or, you know, promising results. That was where he got excited to say, okay, this has a lot of potential, has a lot of options and it has a lot of marketplace. So it would make sense to pursue. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's always nice to have somebody in your corner, you you know, no like trust, you know, I mean, uh, you, your dad kind of ticks all those boxes. So that's nice. Um, but it can actually help you give you a bit of support. It's, it can be a lonely journey, right? Absolutely. Uh, and so you mentioned you you were in front of some NFL teams and stuff like that. So so how did you go about sort of doing some of that market testing and getting that kind of engagement? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, as I mentioned, there was a lot of markets that we could have gone into that would have made sense. Um, but it was one that which one, for lack of a better word, lowest hanging fruit or which ones are the easiest to enter into because, you know, military, anything with the government takes a long time. And, you know, you take in some of the other markets. We also looked at elderly care and so you know, elderly care. Urinary tract infections are a huge thing with elderly people, and that causes that's a lot to do with hydration. So he said, "Okay, that's in the market." But when we looked at it, I'd say which one is probably has the money, willing to pay, and you know, and is a reasonable path forward. And said, "Okay, especially college and NFL teams are going to be ones that they're going to want to perform or perform at their peak abilities." And there's a lot of studies that talk about how if you're dehydrated, you don't perform as well. They actually did a study with basketball players and they would look and say, if you're hydrated, do free for, or free throw shots, how many did you make versus how many de- be when you become dehydrated? And that number goes down quite a bit. So we're saying, okay, they have a need. They obviously have money. Big teams have a lot of money to spend and they're looking to up performance. And so then we started to simply reach out to the team. So, hey, we have, you know, we're still in the early stages. We don't have a, a fully, uh, fully, uh, polished product, but we can, we do have something that you guys can start to test. You can see, you could use, you can see if it works. And why don't you kind of almost be a partner with us as we're getting this up and going so you can be the first step. So that's kind of as we started to reach out and we had to reach out to lots. Some of them weren't interested or wanted to hold off and wait, but we reached out to enough of them that we started to get some traction with them. Yeah, that's cool. And let's be honest, right? I mean, there's nothing kind of like saying you got the NBL, NBA or the NFL, in your, you know, well, you know, these are the kind of people using our stuff. Right, exactly. <laughs> so great credibility, yeah. So so what, what? tell me again, what was the journey like there from, from idea? How long did it take you to get to a point where you had a product that you could sell and, um, you know, that you, you were really in the market? So – we never, I don't know that we fully ever got into the market. It was one where we, so, so from idea to, you know, pass or about a year from idea to prototyping to getting past a business competition. And then at the end of that year, bought out the business or the other people that were partners in the competition. And then it was uh, from, for about another year, probably about another year, we bootstrapped it. So we were myself, my dad, and a couple other people that I knew um, that were software programmers, other things were really bootstrapping it, doing a ton of work. Not, not a lot of money. And we kind of got to a point of saying, okay, next phase is we need to have money to kind of move this forward. So that's when we um, brought on our initial, I would say more than an investor because he actually became a partner of the firm and he was um, took over a lot of the marketing and, and sales and other efforts. And so he was really an, an, an integral part, but he came on, brought in some money as well. And that was probably, so, you know, year one, prototyping, getting the business partners year two, bootstrapping it by about year three was bringing on the investors. And then it was probably another 12 to 18 months as we're developing it, developing relationships with the NFL team. We had some, what I would have said, early non-polished working devices that they were testing out. 
And that's about the point that we said, okay, we've got it. Because one of the things we found out with NFL teams and with college teams is it's not just does it does it work, but it has to look cool. They, you know, they have a inflated sense of ego that they're saying if it doesn't look good on me, it's not it's going to ruin my image, and so I don't want to wear it. And so we are saying, okay, to get to that level, we have to get a bigger tranche of investment dollars. And that was really where we would we were at about the point where we could have productized and sold the product, but we'd have had to have that money. And that's where we ended up merging with the other company that was actually in a different industry. But we honestly looked and said that is the diabetes industry is so much bigger than any that eclipses with hydration, has such a bigger marketplace, has such a bigger potential um, that that's where we decided to pivot to. So about the time that we were ready to get the product ready to sell is about the time we pivoted to a much better marketplace. That business is now they have done they've done some soft launches. They have some clients on. They've delivered some products, but it'll probably be before it's, I would say a, a full hard launch or full big launch with the products. It'll probably be another year to eighteen months out. Yeah, wow. So I mean, and I think that's what a takeaway for people listening is. You know, when you've got these ideas, it's not. Yeah, it could be a, a brilliant idea as yours was, but it's, it doesn't just happen overnight, right? I mean, what a what a journey to get to a point where, you know, and, and pivots and turns, right? Yeah, no, and I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. And as I said, with law firm and everything else, I work with a ton of inventors, done it myself. But I think everybody, you know, you watch the TV shows, whether it's Shark Tank or other television shows, you watch the movie, you read the book, and it feels like it's an overnight success. I had a great idea. And the next month, next month I was making millions of dollars. But what I think most people feel to realize is it's really an overnight success 10 years in the making. I mean, it's whether it's getting a lot of the skill sets, getting the connections, getting the experience or whatever it is, there's a lot to build behind those companies that all of a sudden you just see, oh, they just took off and were successful. Yeah, because there's a lot of work that got them to that point that to the public's view was the overnight success. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. It's um, yeah, it's it, it's what what we see in the press and the media is really not not the reality of it, right? <laughs> so, um, Very seldom. I'm sure there's some company out there that actually meets that criteria, but for the 99.9% of the rest of us, it's not the case. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so that's really cool. So it's um, and and I, I get the move into diabetes. I mean, it's the I mean the hydration thing is massive, but I guess with diabetes. I mean, it's an immediate problem, right? Like it's something where it impacts people's health dramatically. People can die from diabetes, right? So it will related sort of issues. State hydration is probably a multi-million dollar business. Diabetes is already established as a multi-billion dollar business. So you're taking on a different field. And you're also saying, you know, the nice thing about healthcare and that is is established that, you know, you have to get into the healthcare system and get it, you know, entrenched. But people, you know, Every, at least in America, when we moved over to, you know, the American Cares Act or Obamacare, whatever you want to talk or how you want to talk, one of the things that was a downward pressure on insurance companies was they were no longer able to tranche out people to basically they just didn't take six people and they took the healthy people. They had to take everybody. And so now they're saying, okay, we can't, they're simply, you know, keep the people that are the most profitable. So now we have to reduce the cost. And so that was also one of the calculations is, hey, insurance companies are looking at every turn to reduce costs. Diabetes is one of the biggest drivers for health issues, both for diabetes itself, but also having a lot of other health issues that come along with it. And so that was kind of another thing saying, it's one that the marketplace is ready for. They're already asking for it. They're looking for it. We have the technology that with a bit of reapplication, we could or we could repurpose a lot of what we did and, and reuse 
use it. And third is it, it's a huge marketplace, much bigger potential. And there are companies that aren't doing a ton of business that have anywhere from 30 plus X multiples on their business and saying that it is one where you can grow the business exponentially. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. At, um, t- tell me a little bit about, um, so you, you obviously merged with this other company. How did that sort of come about? I mean, I always, you know, f- find a lot of our listeners always intrigued about how deals come about and where did you find this other party and what happened? And c- can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So interesting enough. So when we were building, I said, my dad was an integral part. He's been on air and he continues to be with it um, since day one. And, you know, if I were to say he's really the mastermind or the brains behind a lot of the technology, I have an engineering background, came up with the idea, but he was one that helped make it a much bigger reality than I ever could. And it was actually interesting. So he had a college professor that was um, that had been he had stayed in contact with he did some of his graduate work with and stayed his connection and actually been working with in other capacities over his career that said hey I've got somebody that you should meet type of a thing you know that I think would be a good connection for you and he's connected and don't know that there's any direct opportunity but you should get connected so they met up and he was the guy that was actually running a diabetes company and so they got to talking and kind of you know spitball and just kind of shot in the air wouldn't it be cool if type of a thing wouldn't it be cool if you could take you know, what is your diabetes service business? And now you have a wearable that can, you can monitor in real time and, you know, wherever they're at and all these type of things. And it was really those conversations that then spurred a, what if, from a what if to, no, we should make this a reality to, hey, this is a great opportunity to, now we're getting investor dollars and we're bringing on bigger, or bigger amounts of money and we're actually making it a reality. So it was kind of that Really, it was my dad's contact from a professor in college that said, you should get together with this guy. Yeah, I think that there'd be a good opportunity here. And then conversations took off from there. Yeah. And isn't that interesting? I mean, you're obviously fortunate you had your, your dad there who was in this space and connected as well. But whether it's a, a relative or not, I, I think it just sort of points to this whole thing about, you know, who, who have you got advising you? Who have you got around you? Who's in your network? Who, who, who's there to give you support? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, in my case, it's my dad. In other businesses I've been, it's been business partners or it's been happenstance. And, you know, the funny thing that I think a lot of times people are saying is I'm so busy, I don't have time to take these meetings or I can't see the direct applicability. And so you turn down opportunities because you don't see the direct correlation to how it's going to be beneficial to you. And yet how many times, you know, as many times as I've talked with other inventors and business owners, it's those, hey, I, I met with somebody and we were just talking or as a friend or we we're exploring opportunities and it turned into something, whether that's how the business started or why they spot a business or sold a business. And so I think that, you know, taking having a network of people that is are good mentors and good connections are always multiplies your ability to be successful in the business because you have all those connections. You never know what you're going to need, but they all oftentimes come or become very beneficial. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's great advice. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I sort of think that this this sort of stuff helps feed this myth of almost overnight success stuff, right? Like, oh, hey, you know, like, well, you know, I just happened to know somebody who was giving me some advice. I don't think that stuff is is as random as a lot of people think. You know, I oh, think I, I think you got to surround yourself with people who can actually help you, right? And no, I and agree. I, I mean, because you say, okay, it's random in a sense, but this is also, you know. Different and, and it's been interesting and without diving into all the other connections we made, but you know, the 
connections that you make are ones that, you know, in this case, it was cultivated over a period of 20 plus years, staying in contact, looking for an opportunity, sitting down with someone, talking, spitballing. And I, I mean, it wasn't just a, hey, there's this guy that's going to buy your business and give you lots of money and you're going to be successful. It was in, or continuing to cultivate different connections and keeping those active over a long period of time is what resulted in a much bigger opportunity than just, a, you know, what appears to be a happenstance. Hey, let's connect you two together. Well, if you hadn't cultivated those connections and they didn't know what you were doing and you know that's the other thing is if he hadn't even known what we were doing and what we were working on and what the project was you would have never made that recommendation made those connections so it's also letting your network know what you're doing what you're working on what's going on so that they can actually know when to make those connections yeah yeah absolutely couldn't agree more it's it's interesting i actually had a call yesterday with a, uh, a prospective client, you know, the sort of $30, $40 million company. But you know, it's great to hear some business leaders saying, hey, we've kind of all got together as a group and worked out where we want to be in 10 years and, and recognizing that we've got great people in our business who know how to grow our business and see opportunities within our business, but recognizing we don't have experts outside of that to help us. You know, if we're going to build and either list or sell or do something like that in 10 years, we actually need people in the tent who actually know how to do that stuff and know how to navigate the journey between now and whether it's five or 10 years probably didn't matter so much, but it was, you know, help us on that journey and, and having a little bit of foresight to know that you, A, and, and I guess enough emotional intelligence to say, hey, we actually don't know how to do this stuff. <laughs> and and we're okay that's, saying that's that. That's the hard thing with, you know, I think most entrepreneurs, startups, small businesses is you think you're the smartest person in the room and you know more than everybody else. And it probably, I mean, I think it takes that personality to actually get a business going. Because if you thought there's other people that are smarter than you can do it better, you would never actually do it because you would say, well, let them do it type of thing. So you almost have to have that personality to get it going to say, no, I can do this better. I can do it faster. I can do it cheaper and everything else than anybody else. And they don't know what they're talking about. And I'm going to show them wrong. But then you have to, at some point, take that step back and say, while I still think I'm the smartest person in the room, I don't have expertise in everything and I don't know everything. And while maybe someday I could learn it all, I'm never going to have the time. And even if I did have the time, I'd be taking so much time to learn all those areas of expertise. I'm not working on the business. And so I think it is having that intelligence to say, take a step back, see where your expertise are, where you can add the most value, and then get people in your network, whether it's people in the business, outside the business, they can add that value that you don't have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think you said it before, you, you can't do everything, <laughs> right? It's, um, I really want we, to do everything, but I don't have the time <laughs> even if I could. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I find the same thing even in our business. I Oh, yeah, but that, that job looks fun. I, I could build this model. I could do that thing. And I'm like, yes, you can, but it doesn't mean you should. <laughs> so it's uh, Yeah, I mean, and for me, give you an example. Like, I think just, just purely for fun, and I, there are people on my team that do it much better, so I don't, but I think it's fun just to build websites and, and to make it look cool and to figure out what – and yet I look and say, okay – I have other people on my team that honestly, when I sit back and say they build a better website that looks better, that has better functionality, calls to action, everything else than I can, even though I enjoy it, I really should spend my time on the areas that they don't have those expertise. And even though I, and I occasionally I think that you still keep those just fun side projects, pet projects, just for some sort of release and to, so you're not always doing it or, or a grind type of a thing. But I think you have to take that step back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Devin, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think you're kind of an extreme entrepreneur in this respect. I mean, I don't have any businesses you've started here, but like, I, my wife's already told me, you try to do any more, I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> that was kind of my wife. She wasn't any more businesses. No more degrees. You've got enough degrees. Now go out and start actually earning money and getting a business. I said, oh, okay, that's fair enough. I probably, four degrees is enough. I'll go start earning money. 
<laughs> yeah, I hear you. Oh man. So, so tell us. Come back to. I want to come back to this, uh, this, this merger and this sort of situation. So you found some people that they're in your network. This, this starts to evolve, and I guess it starts to put some meat on the bone. There's something valuable there. What did the discussions look like when you started getting into the nitty gritty? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the discussions always is, you know, wh- who is bringing what to the table and how much is that worth, right? And that's always a discussion that I, everybody thinks that what they're bringing to the table is worth the most or worth more than everybody else's. So I think that's always a discussion of, you know, well, is it a 50-50? Are you bringing in as much in as I am? And, you know, is that the, worth as much? And, I, you know, that was, I think, a big discussion point is if you're ever looking for a merger or acquisition, you're always going to – everybody – no matter which side you're on, you always think what you have is worth more than everybody else's. And so I think you have to take a step back and one say, what is, if I was in their shoes, what is fair? And two, not only that going forward is a keep everybody incentivized. In other words, yeah, if I beat someone down and I get a few more percentage points or a little bit more equity or, you know, stake in it, but at the end of the day, they're not, don't feel, feel like they're treated fairly. They're not incentivized. They're not going to work hard. Then what's the point of merger? So I think you have to look and say, not only is what do I think I'm worth, but also what I think is fair. So I think that was one of the conversations. And then it was a matter of you have really two different businesses that are while they have good synergy, how do you merge these two together? In other words, you know, who who does what roles and what responsibilities? You know, what is how do you actually, you know, take the businesses that are going in different directions and and get them in the same direction? How do you pay for things? How do you you know, who who do you keep on board? What do they do? And what if there's overlap between people? All of those discussions took place. And it's one where you just kind of have to work your way through it. You know, the other thing is, is. You know, and which sounds a little bit ironic because I'm a lawyer, but a lot of times the lawyers are the ones that if you get them in too early, they oftentimes seem like they kill the deal more than they help it because they're going to tell you all the reasons why the, the deal isn't going to work and all the reasons why it's a bad idea and all the reasons why you're getting taken advantage of and why you should do this and that now. Don't get me wrong. You should get lawyers involved in the sense that you want to make sure the deal is done right. But there is a point where you need to get the deal figured out as to what you guys can agree to before, at least in principle, before you bring the lawyers on. Otherwise, they're going to kill the deal. Yeah, you know, that's a really that is really good advice. And and I respect the fact that it's coming from somebody who is a lawyer as well. It's um, you know, as a guy who's been involved in a I've been involved in a lot of a lot of transactions for our clients as well as my own, but it's um y- you know, it's, I always sort of saying to my clients, you really want lawyers who are doing transactions regularly too. Um, you know, often I find businesses where they say, Oh yeah, but I've got these lawyers, they're great, they're great lawyers, and I'm sure they are, but We've been working with them for years and they do all this stuff. And Yes, but do they do transactions every day? Do they do them all the time? Because there's so many little nuances and little things that go on in transactions where I think if you're not familiar with it and it's not secondhand, you know, second nature to you, you can kind of just miss things or, as you say, you can kind of even screw the deal up because you may be fixated on things that you shouldn't be. Yeah, and I think... If I can, you know, now there are a lot of, it's harder to find these type of lawyers. If I was to give the recommendation, I would find a lawyer that has actually done a business or a startup themselves because getting that experience and actually have gone through it and, and whether it's, you know, starting a business, understanding how much it costs, how much blood, sweat and tears you put into how much it means to you. It's hard to, you don't get that in law school and it's hard to get that experience any other way. You know, it doesn't matter how many deals you've done yourself. It is a different seat when you're actually spending your own money, doing your own thing. And it, you know, has a different purpose. So if you can find, you know, not transactional attorneys that do it on a regular basis, but also have done it themselves, then it gives you, I think, a much better, much better representation. 
Yeah, man, I really agree with that one. It's it's funny. One of our little expressions is, you know, unless unless you've had a few sleepless nights wondering whether your business is going to make it or not, you probably haven't been in business. <laughs> I say at so least a few but there are sleepless nights or a lot of them. Yeah, well, I always laugh, man. I used to have hair, so, you know. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm not quite to that level yet, but I, I'm not far behind you. Oh, well, this is me being stubborn. I often laugh and say, I could, I could let the horseshoe grow out, but it doesn't really, you know, talking about looks and egos and all the rest of it, I'm like, I don't think the horseshoe looks ever going to be in, so. I don't know. Like- you have the, what's his name? It's uh, it's on Fast and Furious. It's uh, um, one of the actors, and it's like, I, I saw, and the only reason I put it is there was a LinkedIn post, and I love LinkedIn. LinkedIn, by the way, and it was like, do you want to be, you know, like this actor that has a shoehorn, like this one that shaves like the rock that shaves his head, or do you want to be the comb over like Donald Trump? And it was kind of like, it was just funny to see who was like, which one they they identified with, because they were all, you know, famous people that all had different ways of dealing with it. Well, that's a fair point too. That's a fair point too. Don't let your hair limit you. (laughs) (laughs) Or lack of hair, I should say. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man. So, so, okay, so you've gone through this merge. This has all started to come together. Um, So can you talk us through some of the, I guess, the the mechanics of the actual deal? I think you you mentioned before that you've you've taken equity in the other business, was it? Or can can you talk us through that? Yeah, so it was – it was a combination. We took or partially took some cash. In other words, the other business was coming in. They were doing a partial, you know, cash investment in order to make it fair. And then went also with some equity. So I walked away. So I'm still passively involved. I still, you know, have some or some dealings with the business, but on a day to day, you know, for for essentially I've, I've sold out or I, I'm not as active in it, but it was kind of a cash deal where they put in some money. So put a little bit of money in our pockets for all the time and effort we put in to do this. And then a lot of it was saying, okay, now this business that we're going to be going into is going to have a much bigger, you know, opportunity and a bigger thing. So I'd like to, while I take, take a little bit of cash out, I'd rather keep it or most of my investment in that business as it flourishes and grows. And so that was kind of the, the deal that we struck the kind of a mixture of both. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and um, and so, how what does that business look like today? How big is it? Or you know, can do you have any of that? Can you share any of that? <laughs> All right. And just as a reminder, completely going back to our conversation, it was uh, J or Stamos. So it was uh, the one that has the shoehorn was Stamos, and so. Yes, Jason St- or St- or St- or Stamos? Stamos, Stamos. Stamos. Yeah, yeah. There we go. I just, I'm like, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> this is a complete aside. It popped into my head. So I had to, I wanted to revisit that. Now, going back to your original question, <laughs> which is, you know, so what is it? So it is the heart. It, it depends on if you were to say, you know, is it how much it has in coming in as far as actual revenue versus what are the multiples in the in the business or the industry in the sense that right now the medical industry, especially where it's in, they're getting crazy multiples. I mean, some of the you know comparables are I said, I think it was one of them got a 34x. I mean, they had, you know, it was an eight-figure business, but they got a, a you know a billion dollar plus evaluation. I mean, it was not even a hundred billion dollar business as far as revenue, but it had such a, a promising potential. So if you're to go off of multiples. This business probably, if you were to do a, com- a comparable, is in the nine, to, you know, nine-figure-plus business. If you're to go off of, you know, actual sales and, and customers and clients, it's closer to it, you know, in the mid-eight-figure business. So, kind of depends on if you. I don't know if it's cheating, but if you say looking into the future, what it's worth based on a multiple versus you say what the revenue is and what it justifies. Yeah, yeah, no, and and you're right. I mean, this I, I think this just underscores the fact that 
value is in the eye of the beholder too, right? I mean, it's it's worth what someone's willing to pay. And you know, I think if somebody walks in and offers you a thirty-four multiple, I mean, you just you don't you just <laughs> take say, that? Like absolutely, <laughs> that sounds great. I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd take I'd take twenty-four if I had to. You know. <laughs> Oh, I guess if you really twist my arm, it's still going to be a billion dollar company. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can sleep at night. I can sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, that might oh, help with cool. a few of those sleepless nights. If I have that much uh, to walk away from, I'll be good. Yeah, indeed. I hear you. I hear you. So, oh, that's cool. And so, so tell me a little bit about what you're doing today because it sounds like you know the your you've, you've got a law practice, and I'll let you explain it to us, but. It sounds like you've, it's been very much influenced by this journey. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've still got way, I don't know, way too many. I like, I think it's the right amount, but most people think it's way too many interests. So I think I have, so I have the law of practice, which is a big part of what I do. And so and I know day in and day out, I have my law firm, I have myself, some attorneys, support staff and other things. And we focus a lot on helping startups and small businesses, patents and trademarks. And that's probably because I love startups and small businesses. So that's where we tend to focus. I also have just a very small, you know, family business. that's more for fun. My kids get to work with it. You know, some of my nieces and nephews are, are, are involved with this. So it's, it's not one that's ever going to make a ton of money, but I love it just because it's fun that my kids can learn how to be part of a business at a young age. My kid or my son that's only 10 years old, you know, I, he was making, I, I sat down and added up how much he's making. He's making a lot of, I'm like, I never made that much money as a kid. So it's a fun business. Um, and then I have a couple, although we're getting ready to launch a couple more that are just on the cusp, but will probably be within the next month. One is a legal, it's kind of like, and I assume you know, kind of like legal zoom only is for law firms. So it's kind of a white label service that allows you to do offer some additional DIY products, getting ready to launch that, that kind of spun out of the, the law firm and, and some of the things as well. And also have a product development engineering firm that I, that I run as well. So I have weight, I have a lot of hands in the cookie or cookie jars, but I, I love it because, you know, I built really good teams around it to where I can pursue the different things that I think I can add value and add or have passion for be involved as I want to be. And also, you know, Keep it at that higher level, which is where I enjoy, as opposed to you know more on the the the, the down in the dirt or down in the dirt type of level. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And and with the you know the well, one of your law firms, <laughs> one of the firms you're working with anyway. So I going into IP and that as a, as a specialty sort of area is that was that driven by your experience you know with with the wearables and all the rest of it. No, yes and no. So no, in the sense it wasn't, I, I, so I was pursuing a law degree and I already wanted to go into intellectual property, which is patents or includes patents and trademarks before I even started that business. So I was already headed down that path and, you know, it was interesting. So I loved it. So that's where I, you know, I was always doing both the business here on the side as well as my law practice. And basically that's been my whole career is doing startups on the side or really a second full-time job in the law practice. Now, since I started my own firm, that's meshed a lot better together and I get to balance that a lot better than I previously did. Um, but really it was more of, so one of the interesting things, so the very first patent I wrote start to finish was while I was still in law school and it was for the wearables business. It was for that company. I wrote my first patent while I was still a law clerk, hadn't graduated, but you can, I was still able to do it. And so that's one where it wasn't that it was, I was already down that path when I started the wearables. But one of the things that was really helped with the evaluations is when we got into what is proprietary, what's different, what's defendable, where's the, the a lot of the assets of the business, it was on that intellectual property. We had a pretty good patent portfolio. And so I probably, you know, I see patents and everything or intellectual property. So all of the businesses I've started, I've always had that as a part of where we build the assets. So it wasn't that it started from the wearables, but it certainly was a big part of that wearables company. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And so help me with something because I, I you know, speak to a lot of business owners. Um, some of them do have product-based stuff. And and I do often ask, you know, we, we do transactions, right? So, hey, have you trademarked any of this stuff? Is there any patents? Has, have you done any of this work? And one of these common reactions I think I've heard plenty of times is, no, we haven't gone down that path because at the end of the day, the patent and everything else is only worth as much money as we can throw at it to defend it. Um, if somebody really wanted to rip us off, they don't have to change it very much, you know, and, and they're only going to they're going to be much bigger, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is all the reasons why they haven't done it. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, you're sitting on the sort of other side of the fence and, and you've been there as the entrepreneur. I don't know. Do you have a view on all of that? And I'll freely admit it's probably a biased answer because, you know, but I'll give you a few because I hear that all the time as well. And, you know, a few thoughts on that. You know, one is one that you hit on is, you know, it's only as, as much as you can defend it. And that one, it, it also it always assumes that the person you're going to be defending it up against is a giant or the Goliath, which sometimes is the case. And other times you're the bigger party and you're the one that is defending it against a smaller up and coming competitor. So it's not always a case. That you don't always assume that it's going to be someone that, you know, is the, the Goliath that you're never going to be up against. But, you know, another thought is, you know, that is also assuming that the only reason you get a patent is for to sue someone or, or for protecting. But there's, I, you know, as, as a lot of the businesses, it also is an actual asset or a tangible asset that's part of the business that has value. And that's what, you know, when I talked about the valuation on the one, because, you know, just, you know, it's really hard when you're doing a business, there's a lot of, you know, conceptual idea, a lot of figuring things out, development, blood, sweat, and tears. And it's not like necessarily physical. It's a lot of up and th things up in your head. How do you put a value on that? How do you monetize that? And a lot of times it's with that intellectual property. If you get a patent on it, then you have an asset that says, no, we actually have a value, an asset that has value. Now, the other thing that, you know, another thing that comes up is, you know, everybody says, well, yeah, but, you know, take wearables. Apple is, you know, Apple is obviously in the wearable space. So is Fitbit. They have much more money than I do. Now, someday I hope to have that much money, but it's not going to be for a little while. And so, you know, you can say, well, you know, if Apple came along. They could just rip it off and they could keep you up in or tie up in court. You never be able to enforce it and you'd always lose. But my, you know, a little bit of the response is, is, well, every big business always has a competitor. Apple has Samsung. Nike has Adidas. Adidas. Pepsi has Coke, you know, and you go through the line. And so, you know, if you have a, a product that, you know, a big competitor is, is wanting to uh, ripping off or is doing something with go to their next competitor and say they obviously think it's very valuable it's worthwhile what you know we can't enforce this but you definitely can you have the money and it gives the competitor an advantage because they can enforce it it's valuable to them and so there's options that a lot of times i think if people were to take a step back look through and say okay what are the reasons we're doing this and what are the motivations and can we protect it is it something we want to protect or is it more of a value you know not only that is a lot of times when you get into investors or you know venture capital or angel investors there a lot of times one of the questions i'll ask is how do you have this what's proprietary about it and how do you have it protected so you may be getting a patent just so you can answer hey we got a patent on this it's protected you can invest in it it's an asset so there's a lot of ways that you're going to look at it so rather than you know rather than just go to kind of the go-to uh, reasons think about it and see whether or not it fits your business that that's some excellent advice, and I agree with you. I think most people think about it as a as a defense mechanism for somebody doing something underhanded, as opposed to it being an asset. And how do you leverage that asset to to actually fundamentally make money? Um, and and I don't just mean necessarily revenue, as you say. I mean you could actually be selling this asset. Um, and and I think that's a good note. I mean, uh, you know, big companies they want to grow, they want ideas. They, there's only two ways they do it, right? They build or they buy. And so um, now the assumption I think with a lot of people that I've seen is that 
well, we have the pattern because we're worried about people ripping us off. Yes, but lots of big companies don't want to rip you off. Um, it's not doesn't mean they're not going to behave competitively. But geez, you know, when you go to a large company and you go, listen, we've already done the, the hard work on this. Um, you don't need to build it from scratch. I mean, if you've got a ton of money, it, it is easy to buy people. <laughs> yeah, well, so, and not only that, they're gonna they're gonna do the same kind of calculation. Okay, if we go and rip these people off, and and you know, then they go and sell, or they don't, they don't, they don't go away. We can lose a lot more, and it's a lot of times it's easier to buy them because, to your point, one, they, they've already done a lot of the research and development, and while they, you could rip them off, it may take you six months or a year or two years to figure out what they've done and go through that. You'd rather just buy that, get so much ahead. I mean, that's why I look at a lot of yeah, the acquisitions as Apple is going back to the example. They buy a lot of people because it gets them that much farther ahead in the marketplace that much earlier. And while they could do it, if they hadn't put enough time, money and re- efforts or resources, which they definitely do, they'd rather get or keep ahead of the competition by a lot of times buying those and keeping the people that developed it and, and building their portfolio and or making it more defensive. So just because they may or may, might be able to, a lot of times it's more advantageous to buy rather than build it yourself. Yeah, which comes back to that whole point of you know put yourself in a position to be be acquired, right? Build build with the end in mind. It's uh, it, it delivers a lot more value, and, and and you know like there's so many prominent cases around this sort of stuff too, right? And I, I don't have all the ins and outs off the top of my head, but I'm 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 thinking back to you know when smartphones started coming out and. Um, you know, Microsoft bought Nokia, and I think it was Google bought Motorola. I'm pretty, pretty, I'm going from memory here, but you know, and I remember reading it at the time that it was like, you know, the big part of all this is to buy the patents and make sure that they're not going to run into issues later as they're developing new technologies. Yeah, a lot of those they're almost saying, okay, if we're getting into this field, we got to get someone that has enough technology or enough patents that you know, even if they're they were looking at it as mutually assured destruction. In other words, yeah, Google probably has some patents that they could sue Apple. Apple probably has some patents they could sue Microsoft. But as soon as Microsoft, then Microsoft is going to turn around and say, yeah, but you're infringing over here. And so if you want to, you know, so it's a little bit of that mutually assured destruction where it's easier to have patents in the given field where you're at, such that if you have a competitor comes along, that both of you would have to play ball or you're going to both kind of, you know, either rise together or sink together. Yeah, it's interesting. And I do remember, gosh, I'm, I'm testing my memory here a bit, but I do recall there were some lawsuits back in the day with Apple and Samsung and all these sort of guys. I, I, they all did sort of suddenly, would seem to quietly go away. So may, maybe they maybe they realized that was a zero-sum game and it was just better they focused on their own innovation. But, uh, but yeah, well, I it's, think uh, Apple is honestly was a, a change in the guard from Steve Jobs to Steve Cook and where Steve Jobs was much more litigious, Steve Cook said, we're, we're expending a lot of effort in areas that don't make sense and so he kind of said let's let's get some of these lawsuits that are defocusing us out of the way so i think it is also a change of the guard as well yeah yeah that's interesting yeah um you know i'm i'm you know putting a pin in for a second and calling but uh, full circle here jason stratham that's the guy you were thinking of that's who I was thinking of, exactly. <laughs> so, okay, now that we've, hey, I'm now glad we've there's nothing up. else. We came to the recognition of who has the, who, or the shoe whore that is, or that the people do find desirable, or at least women do. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know, I've got the guy I need to model myself <laughs> off. If only I had his six-pack to go with it, it would be uh, really good. <laughs> um Tell me, you, you with IP um, and, and protection, and um, I imagine, um, you know, you must see companies of all different sort of sizes, at what point, you know, I guess people on this entrepreneurial journey, they're developing, you know, it's as you explained with your story, even it could be a three, four, five-year journey where you're pouring money into something before you get to a point of monetizing. 
At, at what point on a journey do, do you think people need to start looking at protecting that IP, you know, trying to balance that cost versus benefit and, you know, it's it just doesn't seem to be a clear line to me. <laughs> there isn't a clear line. It's a short <laughs> Now I'll give you a few guidelines. But, I mean, every business is different. And the problem was with any business, especially startups or small businesses as you're getting going, is you always have more money or more things to spend money on than you have money to spend. And there's always things that need your budget. And so you're saying, you know, do I do intellectual property? Do I make payroll? Do I keep the lights on? Do we do marketing? Do we do sales? And, you know, there's always things that so, you know, probably the best rule of thumb that I've come up with, and it's not it's not by far not definitive, is if you're getting to a point that if somebody were to come along and either copy or otherwise knock off what you're doing, it would be an ouch to your business that's when you should consider to protect it. So if that's your brand and you're saying, okay, yeah, we're a small brand. And if somebody to come along, it'd be easy enough to rebrand. Okay, you probably don't need to worry about your brand yet because you're saying it's pretty easy to pivot. On the other hand, if you have, you know, 10,000 customers, you know, customer base of $10,000 and you're doing revenue and you're saying, no, if somebody were to come along and they were to knock off or copy or otherwise write our coattails, that would hurt our business. Then you probably reach that point. So you kind of have to go, you know, that's probably the best rule of thumb is if it's going to be kind of that ouch factor. Yeah, that will hurt our business. You've reached that point that you really need to consider it. The other difficult thing, especially with patents, not quite as much with trademarks, but a little bit, is there are deadlines that you have you start hitting into, especially with patents. And so one of the things that's hard with businesses is there is a rule that, and don't tell me why they made up the rule, but they made the rule that um, once you put anything out in the public, and that can be on a website, white papers, offering it for sale, you know, pre-selling it, crowdfunding, anything, anytime it goes out in the public, you have a year from which uh, that first time you put down the public that you can file a patent on it. And if you don't, it can becomes public domain, it means anybody can do it, anybody can use it and you can't protect it. So it is that balance of, you know, one is, is it going to hurt your business? And two, are there deadlines you're hitting up against that if you lose the opportunity, it's going to hurt your business. So you may say, yeah, we haven't reached that point yet where the product is really, you know, out yet. But if we miss these deadlines and we're closing the windows and, you know, foreclosing opportunities that might be very beneficial later on. But when, you know, but we can't pursue now because we've missed that window or that opportunity. So those are kind of the, the rule of thumb is know the deadlines when you have to do it by and then look at make sure you, if you don't miss those deadlines and then also look at that ouch factor. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I, I guess this just needs to be one of those elements in your product roadmap, right? There's some way where you start thinking, okay, we're getting towards this time frame. We need to start planning around it. Now, one other thing, I'll jump in this real quick. The other areas don't you don't need to start too soon. The other time where people want to get so started is I've got a great idea, and if I just get a patent on it everybody's going to be pounding down my door and wanting a license and I'm going to be a millionaire just because I got that. That doesn't happen 99% of the time, you know, as opposed to that's what people think you do. You want to build a business. In other words, if patent doesn't do you any good if the business never gets anywhere. And so while I'm certainly a proponent of it, make sure that you have that roadmap that, Hey, we do have the budget to actually get the people on board that we need to, to do product development, to get the sales, because if the business never goes anywhere, your patent's not worth much or anything either. So you want to make sure to put that as part of your roadmap along with everything else. Yeah, that's, that's some great advice. Um, you know, it's this whole, you, you know, we've all seen it, you, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of model like, no, 
it's that's often doesn't work right. So it's, most uh, of the, every, if you build something really cool, or if you build the ark and there's a flood, then they might come. But most <laughs> of the time, you have to pull the market along. You have to do more than just build it and hope they come. You actually have to have that plan as to how they how they're even going to know about it and how it's going to get out there and cut through all the noise and what or convince them why they need it. And there's a lot more to go along with it. So yes, don't take the mentality if you build it, they'll come because they need to know where to come. Yeah, yeah. And there needs to be a market, right? I mean, I, I have seen plenty of people who have ideas that are interesting ideas that could be even good ideas, but it's based on this premise of developing a new market for a product. And it's like, man, like if you're Apple and you've got tr- a trillion dollars of cash <laughs> sitting there, sure, you can develop a new market. But when you're a small startup and you're agile and you've, as you said, competing priorities for your money, I mean, geez, you want to make sure there's a market there ready, right? That you're pitching to an existing market that has money and is willing to spend. I think either that, or if you really have some breakthrough, then figure have a plan as to how you're going to develop the market. You know, some of the times the market isn't very well defined, but you're building it as you're building the company. So don't wait till you've got the product built and it's already ready to launch. You can be building it. You know, my story, it took several years. We were building, you know, customer bases as we were doing testing and as we were, you know, testing it out and seeing if they would be wanting to participate in a research study and other things. And we are building the market as we go along so that when we're ready to launch, the market's already there. So I don't know that the market always has to be there when you get going, but you do have to have a plan as to how the market is going to be there by the time the product's ready. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. You, you're doing lots of things at the same time, I guess, it's, uh, is the key to being in business. Devin, I, I could talk to you all day about this sort of stuff, but I know that you've got a life and you're a busy man, so I don't want to hold you up too long. But um, I, I, I'd love to know, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll put you on the spot with this in a minute, um, but I, I'd love to know if there is one tip that you'd give to your fellow entrepreneurs who are out and about, whether they're starting a business, building, where, wherever it is. I mean, you've, you've obviously learned a lot of things along the way, but, but before I before I put you on the spot and ask you that, it's, um, are you cool with people reaching out to you and making contact and that sort of stuff? Absolutely. I love talking with people. So absolutely. Yeah. So if they want to reach out to out to me, if they want to connect up, you know, best thing is probably via my law firm. If you want to talk about other things, you can still get in contact me with that. Um, two ways to, or to, to connect up there. If you just want to find out more about the law firm, if you want to talk about my businesses or anything else, you want to find out kind of what patents and trademarks are, you can go to our website, which is just Law with Miller, all one word, lawwithmiller.com. And that's a good way to just get some general information, find out a little bit about me and more of my law firm. If you want to get a, a just, you know, connect with me one-on-one, if you want to talk patents or trademarks or business or anything else, then they can go to strategymeeting.com. That link's right to my calendar. They can grab a day and time that works for them. It's free of charge. They don't have to do anything. So they just go to strategymeeting.com. So either of those ways work great. That's awesome. And you, you mentioned LinkedIn before. Are you Is it okay for people to reach out and connect on LinkedIn? Absolutely. I love LinkedIn. So I dislike almost all of their social media, but I love LinkedIn. <laughs> so if they reach out to if you reach out to them on Facebook, pretty good odds. I probably will never respond back. If you reach out to me on LinkedIn, absolutely. So if you go to Devin Miller and do like patent attorney um, or Devin Miller, Miller IP law, I'll pop right up. Definitely connect with me on LinkedIn or reach out to me and I'm always on there and we'll we'll make sure to respond. Well, that's awesome. And we'll, we'll, Put some links to uh, to your profile and whatever else in the show notes for this for to make it easy for people. Um, if you are listening to this and you'd like to reach out to Devin, please be be courteous. Put a you know if you send a connection or something, put a note. Maybe let him know that you heard him on this podcast, so he has some context as to why you're reaching out or where you heard from heard him heard about him. So uh, so it's not so uh, so random and weird. Um, 
Um, Devin, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I, I, I really am grateful for you sharing your story and sharing some of your insights. I, I just know that, you know, business owners who will be listening to this will, will get a lot of value out of it. Um, is there any kind of tip, passing advice, you know, final words that you'd, you'd like to impart with, with our audience? Too many final words. No, I'll give you a couple. <laughs> so I'll, you have for one tip. I'll give you my two tips. At least I found that work for me. And if they don't work for other people, then don't use them. But one is that, you know, if you're anything like me and you, I have, you know, 10 ideas before I get into work, I have another 20 ideas while I'm at work. And by the end of the time, my head hits a pillow, I've got another 10 ideas. And 99% of those ideas are terrible ideas that really don't work. So one of the things I found is if I have an idea that I'm excited about, simple as it is, I'll write it down on a sticky note. I'll place it on my desk. I'll let it sit there for a week and then I'll come back and revisit it and see if I'm still as excited about it as a week as I was when I originally thought of it. Most of the time I'll say, that was a dumb idea and I'll crumple up the sticky note, throw it away. But every so once in a while I'll say, no, that's, I'm still thinking that's a pretty good idea and I'm excited about it. And then I'll revisit it and can explore it further. So I think that is, if I could give one piece of advice, that's the best or best thing I could hit on. The one other piece of advice I'd give is one we already hit on, which is, you know, get a plan for your business. Do your research. How are you going to hit the marketplace? What your product is? How are you going to develop it? Where are you going to? Now, that plan is inevitably going to change. It's never going to be the it's never going to make it through the whole life of the business. But you need to get a plan in place so you can convince yourself that it is a good idea, that it's worthwhile to pursue. And so many people get so excited about the idea that they jump over that step and then they come to find out that this is not a good opportunity. That's not what I thought it was. I can't do it. It's going to be way too much money. Nobody's going to pay for that much. I don't have the expertise and, you know, on and on. So at least get that plan in place. It's going to go in the garbage eventually, but it's worthwhile to convince yourself of the opportunity before you get invested in it. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much. That's, that's great advice. And, and you know, I'm, I, as I said, I'm sure plenty of people who are listening to this will be, will be taking a lot of notes. So, uh, Devin, thank you so much for sharing your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. I had a blast and appreciate you having me on. My pleasure indeed. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.